You grew up visiting your dad all over the world, and in the course of all that travel found yourself more and more comfortable in between places. In fact, your comfort level with the unknown became so strong that you sought it out. In Mongolia, you found it, deeply and intensely. And in between worlds, you thrived. You are listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. I remember once we were up, when I was up in the Satin late at night, there was something outside the tent and it was like almost as if it was like rustling and weird. And the next morning the shaman came over and he's like, that's water spirit. He came to visit you last night, didn't he? And I was like, um, yes. He's like, don't worry. He was just checking you guys out. This week, a visit from the water spirit, life among shaman, and earning the love of a little boy. Join us on a journey from the United States to Mongolia and learning to live with the unknown. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. So my name is Michael Littig. I'm an entrepreneur, theater artist, and a teacher. Um, I'm from New York City. That's where I live now. I'm originally from Florida. And I was a 2008 Fulbright scholar in Mongolia. I think it always starts in your childhood. For me, my dad lived overseas and so I grew up on airplanes. At such a young age, it was like this place where I could understand that there were different ways of being, different ways of living, different ways of being and seeing in the world. And so when I went to college, I studied theater. For me, um, I always looked to these great teachers, and there are these amazing theater artists that when they were my age in their early 20s, they went across cultures, and that ultimately defined who they were as human beings. So their work, in a way, became unignorable. And so I really was seeking out a place that was going to turn my world upside down, was going to be a totally different belief system that would shatter what I believed about the world. And in that collision, I could then begin to think and dream about and redefine what I wanted my life to be. I had read this book called Between Worlds, and it was a, a woman um, named Uma Singh who traveled with shamans in India. And as I read that book, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, like, this is me. When that shaman is feeling lonely and feels like they have a responsibility to their community, and yet they would then turn blue and writhe on the floor like a snake and scream and become a god. I wanted to understand 
the root of storytelling and the root of performativity. So I was always like really moved by this quote by the end of the book, which says, to live between worlds is to know truth and beauty, even as if they all told me it leaves you helplessly lonely. And there was something just about that that I, it really resonated with me. And so I thought, I wonder if you could go study with shamans. And so what I did is I just started emailing people all around the world <laughs> that studied shamans. And Mongolia popped up. And Mongolia, you know, in the early 90s, uh, came out of the Soviet Union. And now there was a resurgence of shamanism because, you know, it was such a repressed practice throughout the whole time of the Soviet Union. You could be killed to study or believe in shamanism. And it was also this Tibetan Buddhist culture that was just deeply fascinating, that had artistic practices that had been around for 4,000 years tied to the landscape. And everything in me said, this is the place. Like, oh my gosh, this is the place. And so I sent a lot of emails and somehow got a handwritten letter sent to me from Mongolia. This is before you could like send it through email. me is like, what's the difference and the correlation between ritual and performance and ritual and performativity? The way that a shaman prepares for a seance, how could that be correlated to an actor's preparation? And how, by, by observing all this, could I therefore begin to unlock what are the, the elements of ritual that really allow for what we see in performance, which is this moment of, I would say, ecstasy or this moment of you could say if you used it in other spiritual, like the divine. That's why I chose Mongolia and that's how I found myself on that wild adventure, living and uh, working with shamans and theater artists and Mongolian traditional artists for a year. The first thing I think about when I'm like, I'm there, it's deeply cold in Mongolia. I can still breathe in through my nostrils and they'll freeze. And I can like inhale this like white smoke because Mongolia during the winter is like this. It's the most polluted city in the world. And so what's going through my head is usually, oh my gosh, I'm so cold. <laughs> um, but oh my gosh, I'm in this unknown landscape that's desolate and difficult. There were some pretty remarkable shamans or things that I came across that were unexplainable. There's this particular man who spoke about his between worlds and the poeticism of what it means to take that responsibility on. And it's hard to befriend a shaman. They're a bit elusive. Um, they kind of disappear into the mysterious wilderness in some ways. So I just started going to shaman seances because I knew a friend who knew a friend. And then they would say, can you come at three o'clock this afternoon? I'd be like, I will be there. And then suddenly I would be there and we'd be in this room. The shaman would go into trance. He or she would enact a lesson to the, the room. It could be a family member was sick. 
I remember once this most powerful moment. We were all in this huddled in the middle of the Gare district, and it was probably 20 of us in this room. And this woman, her son had been kidnapped, and she wanted to know where he was. The shaman, they, um, it's almost as if, like, I'm a very practical person, you know, like I w- look at things, I'm like, is this real? But it's as if, like, something who had, had never been in that person's body is now in this person's body. And it's almost it's not performative it's like it's so deeply real and the shaman said your your son is is kidnapped he's in this area if you sing to him now he will hear you and in between stifled cries she began to sing and we all sang with her and so it was a bunch of collective experiences of like that and it was just a descent into the unknown that's what i would say and in the most beautiful way and this is something i've 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 come to learn from that experience which is when my heart starts to beat like that, when my heart starts to pound like that, that I'm go, I don't know how I'm going to do this. That I know will be the deepest teacher for me. That I know will be the thing that is going to change my life. When you see someone go into trance, it's like watching an animal. They like become something greater they scream and then they start to say things they start to speak in like languages that are old that they wouldn't even know and all my skepticism goes out the out the door for a moment and i'm like all right you can't you can't fake that and i think it was particularly that story of like sitting with that shaman and them singing that song and then i remember he like the the shaman not the shaman the spirit turned and it like pointed right at me and it said come forward and I was like oh no oh no I like knelt down and then he was just like you are blessed and then he like hit my back (laughs) now I've been with shamans where I'm like yeah you you're faking you're faking but there are things that you see and you're like yeah can't explain that and I've I've seen people do impossible things under trance. I've seen people touch hot coals. I've seen them become almost animalistic. I've seen them become a, what seems like a god. I've seen them almost turn 50 years older and like ancient. It's, it's so strange. And the more I studied the belief system, the deeper uh, fear I got because it's a—it's very much about like spirits can possess you. If you don't uh, anoint that snake with milk, it will um, come back to haunt you. Like it's those type of things. It will attach itself to you. And so as I got deeper into it, it's actually got more frightening, honestly, to be involved in those worlds because you're like, I don't know what I'm, I'm adopting as a belief system. As I like, you know, zoom out, 10 years later, it's like, what I really take away from studying with shamans is every action has a belief and that creates a system of belief, right? How it manifests differs in every culture. But for you, what your belief system is, is true, deeply true to you. This one particular experience, we all went, I was studying 
the Satan people. Satan people live on the edge of Siberia for 4,000 years, and they live with reindeer. They're called Satan. Satan Hun, which means reindeer people. And to get there, it takes 36 hours off-road, because there are no roads in Mongolia beyond the cities. It's just open step. So you drive for 36 hours off-road, you get to a very northern aspect of Mongolia, and then you get on horseback for two days. And we did this in the middle of winter. So it's negative 30 below outside, and you're living in a teepee, um, which feels like you're out of a movie. And I'm sitting with shamans and reindeer. Like, it can't even get even more mythological. But suddenly, for the first time in my life, I felt like I was at home. I didn't want to be anywhere else in the world but that place. You know, there's so many lessons I I'm, I still constantly think about in Mongolia, and this is probably the one of the most profound. And it was like it's a very intense moment, but it was a shaping moment. After we had you know sat with the reindeer and, and been in the in the teepee, we uh, had started to head home, and we were in this car, and it's the middle of the night. Uh, suddenly, we're, we're off road, going down the road, and suddenly there's a loud bang, and the car slows to a stop, and my friend Oyan Billick gets out. And I'll never forget this, like in the headlights of his car, of the, of, of the car, right? I can see his face. He goes white and he gets tears in his eyes and the gear shaft has been torn into and we're in the middle of nowhere. In Mongolia, you can certainly freeze to death without fire to warm you at night. Luckily, just in the distance, about a mile away, there's a, a gear and a gear is a home. It's like a, it's you would call a yurt and there's a faint light and we can see it. And there's this custom in Mongolia that if a stranger turns up at your home, you'll slaughter the last goat you have to feast your guest. Because one never may know when you're that person turning up in the middle of the night, hungry, thirsty, need of shelter. And so we knocked on their door and they let us in and they gave us their bed. They slept on the floor and they poured us this hot milk tea. And that moment, like that moment allowed me to hope for humanity, for life. They saved our lives that night. My whole Mongolia experience was like leading up to that. I get goosebumps talking about it leading up to that and like that event and then the residual remnants of like trying to process community, survival, love. Like I went back and I wrote a play about it. I tried to deeply understand it. I tried to, to carry that type of spirit with me. It, it haunted me in this beautiful way and it still haunts me to this day. That type of community that type of belief in humanity, that was the moment. But I think the most powerful person in my life was this little boy. Um, his name was Tomo, and he lived in my building, and he was my best friend. 
he he lived under the stairs in my building with his mother in a like probably a four foot by six foot room he was always there when i came home you know the first when we first started being friends i didn't know the language as much so he would show me his toys and i would give him a thumbs up and i would give him candy and he would just be like oh thank you so much and walk away but i knew i knew our friendship was really going somewhere partly because he always wore a mickey mouse sweatshirt and i was from orlando so it was as if he was like a reminder of home and i'll never forget one time we were walking with his mother and there was like this awkward silence because after your language only goes so far and then you're like what do we say and she just pulled out her phone quietly and played celine dion <laughs> it was awesome Cause you made me sometimes being in these places in these these unknown landscapes it's overwhelming but when you have a little boy that screams your name every time you come home or knocks on your door every mor- morning and i say henbe which means who is it and he goes be banna and he goes it's me <laughs> or like we watch cartoons and then if i got if he got like a little rowdy i just like kick him out and throw water on him <laughs> you know like he was the person i still think about cuz i i remember when i had to say goodbye to him and i came down the stairs and i woke him up and he came out and i knelt down and i said Dada Otsi, many nights, which means, I'll see you later. I'll see you soon, my friend. And his mother looked at me and she goes, really? And I looked at her and I was like, I don't know. And he did something that he had never done before, which is he, he sniffed my left cheek and he whispered, Hayateshu, I love you. And I stood up, walked out the door, and... All I could see was this immense Mongolian blue sky. And I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget him. I'll never forget that experience. One of the beauties of a Fulbright is that it's structured but not structured. What it gives is space for opportunity and space for things to happen. and. Yeah, there was a set schedule that I had and things that I did. And it's interesting, right? Is like now I'm an entrepreneur. I've started four businesses, but I learned to embrace the unknown in that experience. I always call it like, it's actually the 51, 50, 49 rule, right? Which is doubt and belief. And that you look at someone like Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa had just as much doubt as we all do, right? If you look at her diaries, it's really incredible, but she had just enough more belief. Now what I face, my work is is really about building things that are unknown. It's like it's it's crafting new programs and doing things that are seem impossible, but it, it's like a training ground and it's something you can't measure. It's something I, I've been always trying to like I, w- I want to like um, take people and say, okay, here, the the government invested this amount of money for me to do a Fulbright, but thousands of people that touched and changed. And that's hard to measure, like, because numbers are impact, right? Like, well, he touched 4,000 people and it was at the age 18 to 25. And, you know, but it's so beyond that. I wish every student, adult human being would have the opportunity to embrace that type of unknown. It is a training ground, it is a training ground to really understand and, and almost befriend the unknown. What I learned through 
Ultimately, the Fulbright is to create order out of chaos. I come back from my Fulbright and I was working as an actor and I was teaching at NYU at that time. And so, and for about a year, I just worked nonstop. And then it all slowed down for a little bit. And I was like, what am I doing? I had this amazing experience. What I need to do something more with it. By that time, I had been starting work as a teaching artist. I'd worked um, a little bit with the Navajo um, community and out in Utah. And so I was like, I'll start a nonprofit. I was like, I should work in a refugee camp. That's where I'll go. I think, I'll, where am I needed in the world? And then, this is so cool, I happened to go to a Fulbright alumni event. And a woman from the Bureau of East Africa happened to be there. And, and by that time, I had done my research and I figured out the Dodd refugee camp. It was on the verge of becoming a humanitarian crisis at that time. And I thought, you know, I, th I think this could be quite powerful to do use theater as a means of communication, reconciliation, healing. I literally like sat next to her and I was like, I have this idea. What do you think? And she's like, this is a great idea. I'm going to send it to the public affairs officer. And I was like, awesome. A month later, I get an email from the public affairs officer. Can you come to Kenya next month? Yes, I will. And there comes that heartbeat again, that fear. I remember landing in Africa, looking out the left side of the window, just pounding going into the unknown. I sat down with refugees and I said, what do you need? And they said, people think we're warts on society. People think that we're terrorists. And we want people to understand that we both have mothers, we have fathers, we have loss, we have heartbreak. And this becomes almost the bedrock of any genesis I do with any community, is I don't ever assume, this is what the Fulbright taught me, I don't ever assume that I know, I know they have more to teach me than I have to teach them. And one of the things I challenge people, because now I work in cultural exchange, is how can they have more than I have by the time I leave? And so that became the genesis. And then I created a year program in the middle of a humanitarian crisis because it became um, one of the worst famines in the Horn of Africa at that time. And it went from 250,000 to 500,000 in the span of time I was there. It's as if like Mongolia prepared me for that experience. What Mongolia taught me is like identity, right? Is that like, if you can unlock your identity about who you are, that gives you what is quite intangible, which is hope. Using art, we'll say art, capital A, as a vehicle, is if you can bring people back to where they're from or who they are, it becomes like this determination. And it's a connection to something greater. And that, like we were just talking about, storytelling can change the world. So I like brought like a documentary film crew with me because I knew that like the stories that come out of this are going to be what's important because people don't understand numbers. They don't understand when I'm like, there were 500,000 refugees or I worked with a thousand refugees while I was there personally. They can't understand that, but they can, they know the story of my friend Abdi Rashid Muhammad. How his parents were burned in front of him and how everything went wrong in his life. And that he, above all odds, is now the best translator in that camp, started a radio station and got a college degree or Ojulu Opio, Opio Achan, 
who fled genocide in 2003 from Ethiopia and beyond all odds became a poet was published like those those things are they're powerful often when you're sitting in a place of the unknown going back to the unknown what you need is like guides you need people that can like make you say you know what i'm just like you or i i can be better now between worlds has become almost this like moniker of my life and it, and it, i can see that it's like it's foundations when i was a child and now it i really feel like i live between worlds and like a shaman i'm attempting to translate the lessons i learned from i was just with um his holiness the dalai lama and you know the lessons i learned from his holiness and how i take that into my life or you know i, I run a refugee program in kenya and the lessons i learned from that and i'm trying to almost take between worlds and come back in in the context of a shaman you're going to another dimension you're there to come back and as as an artist would reflect and share the story share the lesson and what i've always been so moved by is is it's it's almost something i'm i'm like find myself to be so deeply proud of is that i i get to go between worlds and i get to connect people and so largely no matter no it makes total sense now that my work is being someone who literally brings communities together around the world and brings people together anyone can always stay at my place for free no questions asked if i'm in a car and we're driving down the road and someone needs a ride or or someone one of my friends it's going to go out of their way no problem we'll go out of our way. I'm very I live in New York City, so I'm a little minimalistic in everything. But what I love about those yurts that you're talking about, everything has purpose and everything has meaning. So if you were to come to my apartment, everything has purpose, everything has meaning. Nothing, everything I could tells a story on the wall. Why, how? Like literally on the wall, I have this um it's like a framed I had it framed Mongolian script and it, it's the word itgeth which means faith and it's like the one lesson I walked out of Mongolia when I wanted to go right the Mongolians went left and I had to trust that that was the right way to go that's something I take I take with every part of my life I I always take that I'll never forget being in western Mongolia with the Kazakh Mongols and they paid for my food and they were so much more in poverty than i could ever imagine but they took such pride in saying no you are my guest and so whenever someone comes to stay with me you are my guest Twenty Two Thirty Three is produced by the collaboratory an initiative within the us state department's bureau of educational and cultural affairs better known as eca my name's Christopher Worst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Michael Littig shared stories from his time studying under shamans in Mongolia while he was a Fulbright scholar. 
For more about Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We also encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do so wherever you find your podcast. And hey, leave us a nice review while you're at it. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. And now you can follow us on Instagram at 22.33 underscore stories. Special thanks to Michael for his stories and good work in the world. I did the interview along with Kate Furby and edited this episode. Featured music was Alustrat, Walking Shoes, Lemon and Melons, Basket Liner, and Celestial Navigations, all by Blue Dot Sessions. Will I Ever See Another Sunrise by Kai Engel, and Wren by Poddington Bear. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagirlius. Until next time.